Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to a new episode of the New Books Network. My name is Victor Bonin, and today I am welcoming uh, Samuel J. Redman, Professor of History and Director of uh, the Public History Program at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Uh, So published in 2016, his first book, Bone Rooms uh, from Scientific Racism to Human Prehistory in Museum, is actually now available in paperback version. So I, I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to, to go back on uh, this uh, on this book uh, and to, uh, well, get a great opportunity to learn more about what bone rooms are and their complex history, but also their complex legacy. So, uh, Professor, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Um, could we start by sharing, could you start by sharing the history or the story, your personal story behind this book? How did you learn about these bone rooms, which, and maybe you could comment on this, but I thought that the title was, had something ominous in it <laughs> as, as more as descriptive as well. So maybe what kind of uh, trajectory of research led you to these bone rooms and what did you, uh, did, what did you not expect to find there and what did you expect to find there? Sure. So uh, first, thank you for having me, first of all. And um, my, my story with this book goes back to my time as a first working uh, as a young person. Uh, I, I started off in the museum world working as, a, as an intern uh, behind the scenes working with collections. And major natural history museums uh, have these vast collections of birds and fish and, and uh, dinosaurs from, from around the world, uh, and of course, amassed major anthropological collections as well. And I was really surprised to learn when I started working in museums that there were these spaces, colloquially known as bone rooms, that uh, held vast collections of human remains uh, in no small uh, dose of indigenous people from North America, from across North America, but uh, from around the world, indigenous people from around the world and and other people from around the world. So I was really surprised to learn of those things. I then went on to graduate school to study U.S. history, but uh, I couldn't stop thinking about these spaces in natural history museums and, and elsewhere at medical museums and, and elsewhere. And so I, I just kept coming back to that topic. And uh, ultimately, it became the topic of my dissertation and then first book, Bone Rooms. So when we're talking about vast collection, what are what are we talking about really in terms if you could give us maybe an, an, an idea and scale? Yes. So I loved thinking about this question, and I also found it much more difficult than you would think. Um, but here's here's a starting number to, to sort of get us started. The National Park Service did a, a survey of all museum collections publicly you know, available to researchers and came up with the estimate that there are half a million 
500,000 individual sets of Native American remains in U.S. museums. And they estimate that another 500,000 are held by museums in Europe. So that is not including in this tally. And this was one of the major things that I tried to point out in the book Bone Rooms. It's sort of this yes and story. There are also the remains of African-Americans and the remains of indigenous, again, indigenous people from elsewhere around the world who were brought to these same places like the Smithsonian, American Museum of Natural History, Field Museum, uh, Berkeley's uh, uh, Museum of Anthropology and, and many other places. So um, these collections often reach into the tens of thousands. Uh, the Smithsonian had 35,000 sets of human remains uh, uh, at its at its peak. Uh, so, yeah, when I say vast, I, I, I truly mean that in terms of uh, number and, and, and size and scale. So th- this is also, I mean, I had maybe not, it's quite, quite an interesting, um, I mean, I had a few experiences with the, uh, the, the, the back rooms, if you will, of, of museums as well. And it turns out that, you know, when, one thing that a myth that was quickly dispelled for me is the idea that museums know what they have, but they actually don't. And there's a lot uh, that, that, that they, they don't know exactly what they have, where it comes from, and it's part of their job to work on it, right? Uh, so when we talk about these massive amounts of bones, how much is actually being studied or is actively being uh, processed or used in, in research? Right. So it's a it's a mixture uh, in 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 fairness. And um, I I will say that, you know, throughout the course of the 19th and into the 20th century, uh, some scientific research has been done on these collections. And, you know, we we arguably know more about the human body and uh, the history of humanity through um, these studies. on the other hand, and this is a big but, uh, the visions that were laid out by practitioners of collecting human remains and, and studying them of the mysteries of humanity that would be unlocked by these collections and, and the future research that would be possible, very little of that comes to bear. And, uh, uh, you know, well, human remains exhibitions, like the use of human remains as a tool in exhibitions has been quite popular. Uh, ethical problems and concerns and other sorts of fears uh, have meant that a lot of these remains have been mostly behind the scenes and in some cases not really attracting much scientific interest either. So um, you're, you're seeing a lot of changes in attitudes about these in recent years, I think in part because uh, these institutions are, are seeing sort of their their limited value in a number of different ways. And there's a generational change in terms of the curators who were really committed to keeping some of those collections. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's, 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 I found less scientific research taking place uh, on these than you might imagine. So I, to me, I think what, what really um, fascinated me about, about the book is that it, it seems to, it's not just about, it's not just a history book. And and I think uh, it's, it, I mean, through history, it actually, to me, it seems like it was also investigating this very, this problematic process through which human individual remains can suddenly become highly coveted scientific specimens, right? And be seen as solely 
scientific specimen and they, they're nothing else and and can therefore become objects of contention uh, in the middle of scientific debates or even competition against institution. So in, in the beginning of your book for that, it's, it's really quite quite powerful because it, it puts the reader face to face with uh, the the moral conundrum of that process, right? You tell the gruesome story of a Dakota man that was shot in uh, 1864, I think by a militiaman in, in Minnesota and how um, first his body was then mutilated uh, before being buried and then unburied to then be passed through multiple scientific hands for different uh, purposes. Um, so, so we really being put face to face with that that process through which these individual remains uh, certainly uh, lost all sense of um, of individuality and just and just became that specimen that could uh, be used for different purposes. Uh, could you maybe explain to us what motivated this kind of practice? What made it um, quote unquote normal uh, at this time, right in the beginning of the second half of 19th century and throughout the beginning of the 20s? Uh, what made it normal to just excavate all these human bodies and strip them of their individuality and see them solely as scientific specimens? That's a really amazing question. And I, I, I think about the answer on, on at least two levels, you know, sort of what the, you know, motivated the, uh, the, the curators and the museum directors and the institutions that were setting these, uh, these collections up. Um, but then also, uh, what motivated the dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of other collectors, you know, who were ranging from professional to, to amateur. So in, in response to that first part, the sort of the, the almost the meta uh, motivations, um, there are, you know, competing theories in Europe and in the United States and North America about race and the human body in, in this era. And, um, the Civil War looms large in, uh, and you know, uh, um, uh, scientific racism and uh, justifications for the enslavement of uh, uh, African Americans. Um, there's a really uh, dark history behind uh, a lot of the sort of early justifications for establishing these collections, uh, but a lot of it was about racial difference. And, uh, you know, sort of understanding, quote unquote, from a scientific perspective, these different races from around the world. And uh, as troubled as that was, you know, there was this ongoing conversation about it in, in different scientific circles uh, that was that was changing some of these attitudes and ideas. Uh, but many people came to the idea that uh, if science is at least in, in part about replicating measurements and being able to test ideas and theories, um, the way to test ideas about the human body was, you know, not to uh, focus on when our, our bodies are alive and covered in flesh and, and muscle and we can gain and lose water, um, but the bones are sort of considered more stable. And so uh, this became suddenly this widespread uh, idea that human remains uh, that were bones specifically could be used as a tool for future scientific research. And so that, you know, of course, I see these things as connected. Once the institution started doing things like publishing catalogs for how to collect remains or what remains that they had in their collections, wow, suddenly 
many people start to collect human remains uh, that had either a passing interest in science or, or they were sort of early archaeologists or, or people tangentially connected to the museum. Um, but, you know, pertinent to your last question, too, just really quickly, I'll say that a thing that was totally remarkable to me in looking through the archives uh, for these stories is the vast uh, differences of documentation that came to the museum in connection with these remains. Sometimes it was extremely detailed information about who this person was in life, their name, um, uh, where they were found when they were deceased, how their body was obtained. Um, and other times it would just be literally, you know, one example of, of, of set of remains that I write about in Bone Rooms, uh, someone saying this is two skulls. Uh, one is a Japanese gentleman and one is a Japanese criminal. And that was all of the information that was given, you know, uh, uh, so intensely problematic in how a lot of this is framed, but with limited information too to try to undo many of these mysteries. Now that's that, that's to me is, is fascinating. I, I I find particularly fascinating that last example you mentioned of the gentleman and uh, the criminal, as if these two categories could be referred as natural categories in a way. Um, so I mean, of course, like it, it echoes a lot of also the. The, the racist tropes that were that were going on in, in these research uh, you, you touched upon it but I think uh, right uh, so there's this this very difficult process problematic process of how these human remains become scientific specimens uh, and and you t just touched upon the fact that it was not just um, scientists involved in anthropology or um, curators involved in those particular bone rooms collection that were themselves collecting but it was a uh, a myriad, actually, of, of people who were either in the field for some reason, uh, other scientific reason, or were just uh, curious uh, that we just sent send these bones to these museums. So to me, I, I really, I think it also delves into a very, very, very uh, important question, uh, which is how the, the rise of this mentality that science is somehow saving things that are out there, right? And and, and I think you, you talk about salvaging uh, in, in uh, I think that's the second uh, chapter of the book. Uh, the, the idea that if there is, if there are human remains somewhere, they're, they're in need of being rescued and that their final resting place can only be a museum or can only be a place of science. If it's laid down in the ground, then it's just wasted information or wasted data for science. And that would be the worst thing that could happen, right? That at least it seems, so I'm very interested in, in the rise of that mentality, right? Because then it, I think it, we see the impact that it has even today in debates around restitution, uh, but not just for human remains, but also for works of arts, et cetera, that were collected in very questionable context where the, the remaining strong arguments coming from maybe the curatorial side or scientific side is usually, well, we are the only one or we are in the best position to take care of it. So I, to me, I mean, I see here maybe, a, you know, a, a link, but maybe you could correct me on this, uh, with the rise of this mentality of salvaging human remains. Um, what do you think are the factors here that contributed to not only the development of that mentality, uh, but also the spread of this view of science as saving uh, 
bones, when in fact, I mean, in many contexts, not all, but in many contexts, they were just, uh, it was essential, essentially looting, right, or desecrating. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, um, th there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there. And, um, you know, one thing that I'll say right away is that there, there are a number of, of contradictions in terms of my, my answer, my response. So for, here's an example in terms of answering that, like one of the contradictions. And as a historian at, you know, studying history, like you just, you have to get comfortable with contradictions, right? So here's, here's an example. Um, this idea that Native Americans um, were simultaneously viewed as second-class citizens, uh, not as advanced. There were all of these racist tropes about Native Americans, but also at the turn of the century, a contradiction is clear because they're seen as uh, this valuable resource for North Americans that they're, they can be written about or their art can be collected and commodified. Uh, they set us apart in our culture and our ways from Europeans. Uh, you know, in, in many ways that, that culture was sort of commodified and, and desired as well as being dismissed and, and hated, uh, uh, you know, so uh, it, there, these, these sort of weird contradictions exist in that answer. Um, but I think that there, there, this is a, a process that starts early. I became interested in the Army Medical Museum. And what surprised me is that, you know, very soon after the Civil War, during this era of heated westward expansion and um, these skirmishes and battles and genocidal acts that are taking place out West. Um, uh, it's, it's really intimately connected with the medical field and with the expansion of empire that a lot of these medical officers were happy to oblige that this request came out from the army to uh, collect human remains for, um, uh, uh, you know, especially of non-white individuals or battlefield injuries. And uh, I was shocked at how many parcels were arriving uh, in Washington, D.C. and what those things said. Um, you know, and one of the many things that shocked me is how many African-American remains were um, being sent to the Smithsonian as well. And I didn't see much that had been written about that uh, at, at the time. Um, but then those remains were transferred to the Smithsonian Institution. And, uh, you know, this, like you said, the museum model really becomes predominant in terms of thinking about how to uh, document and preserve these, uh, but also to sort of publicly communicate those ideas like the creation of uh, the, um, uh, the, the Hall of Mankind uh, that is, was the precursor for the San Diego Museum of Man, now the Museum of Us uh, in San Diego. Um, so you can see them all along the way sort of testing out this museum model uh, both in terms of the research side of things and the public education side of things uh, that is based on this sort of positivist mindset that there are things out there that can be proven as facts and we can use the scientific method to sort of do that. And that's applied to human remains using uh, a lot of the ideas at the time. Uh, but it's benefiting from the growth of empire and ideas about nationalism as well as these sort of scientifically racist ideas at, at, that were predominant at the time. That's yeah. To to me, this 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 idea of the, the museum being this 
essentially this this arc, right, where where everything uh, pertaining to to science needs to essentially be stored and saved. We we see that the power of it, and I think when you, as you mentioned, when you replace it in uh, a national uh, or empire building context, uh, context, you 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 better understand why the materiality of all these uh, these bones, but other kinds of specimens were so important, and and therefore that led to this argument of salvaging them uh, where, wherever they were, um, they, they first um, they first were. Um, reading the book also, and you, you just mentioned contradiction, so here's one. <laughs> here's one uh, that, that, I mean, is really at the center of your book. Um, it's, you talk about, and I'm really quoting, quoting here just uh, one of the, your expression in the book, you talk about a stream of bones that, were, that was coming uh, from uh, various places, uh, obviously across the U.S., but also uh, internationally, um, a stream of bones that was uh, um, essentially feeding a lot of the major uh, institutions that we know today, right, like the Smithsonian in D.C., Field Museum in Chicago, um, or uh, the Field Museum. Um, yeah, I already mentioned the Field Museum in Chicago, but also the Natural History Museum in New York. Um, so, so there is that stream of bones, and there is that almost uh, compulsive, <laughs> systematic uh, um, collection of bones and, and sending them off. But what's strange is that although there is this scientific argument uh, to salvage these specimens, once they arrive in the bone room, uh, we're not seeing an a straightforward, clear scientific program applied to them, but rather, and I think your book navigates this maze of interpretation, right, that goes on between uh, the mid uh, 19th century up to uh, the mid 20th century, and even up to today, uh, which includes, right, these interpretations include scientific racism, they include medicine, they include human prehistory. Um, how can we? How could you, you know, how did you make sense of that contrast between this active collecting and on the other end, a very ambiguous uh, process of curation and interpretation? I love that expressive expression that you used of, of maze of interpretation, because it's, it's very much the case that uh, it, it is it is true. And, um, you know, one of the, the element, the things that that came out in the story is both uh, episodes of uh, institutional and interpersonal cooperation, and then just as often uh, competition, where egos and interpersonal relationships would would get in the way and would would make things uh, messy and competitive. Um, and you know, anyone who's studied uh, the history of science deeply knows that this happens in in basically every field, right? In, in uh, physics and, and microbiology, like they're, they're human beings behind that. And, um, uh, you know, their, their lives sometimes get, get involved, but, um, yeah, it, it, it really does, uh, become the, the, these sort of stream streams of bones. Maybe I, I could have said, uh, because the people that are sending or submitting the bones in have different ideas and in, interpretations themselves of how these remains will, will be used, um, not always lining up with the ideas or desires of the institutions. And then remains are traded, they're swapped, um, and they're, they're sold on, on the market occasionally. Uh, so um, there, are, there are many different ways in which they are uh, sort of entering in 
to the national collection. So that, that helps us answer the question of, of how so many remains. Uh, Alistair Glitschka, who uh, was probably the most, I, I don't know if you could use the word success here in this, but the most successful bone collector of the 20th century in that he establishes these, these massive collections and, and sort of uh, becomes a, a leader and uh, uh, in, early on in the field, and then has this fall from from grace that's pretty remarkable uh, as his ideas go out of fashion. Um, but he uh, says shortly after taking the job of uh, a, a curator at the Smithsonian Institution, already by like the 1910s, that they have 8,000 sets of human remains at the Smithsonian. So that's basically before you get to the systematic collecting that that starts taking place like just sort of the piecemeal independent collecting that's that's taking place in these early days results of in thousands and thousands of remains being sent to uh the museum and indeed many people sort of per- perceive them as being these rare assets you know like i collected this some people will say in their letters because no one was making any use of it um you know uh uh suggesting that remains shouldn't just be left uh, left alone that they you know should were somehow these scientific resources yeah, that's yeah that, that's that's very interesting right this idea that if a bone lays in in the ground or in a grave it's essentially a wasted bone um, I mean I think it connects once again to this idea of salvaging um, but you if, if I may quote another expression that that really struck me I, I, I actually uh, noted in my notebook because I was like, this is such an interesting way to phrase it. And I think it collapses a lot of the theme in your book. Uh, you use the expression of bone empires. Uh, and I think it's in reference uh, mainly to, uh, you know, these these big institutions that uh, are at the center of your book, like the Smithsonian Film Museum. Um, but I think it, it collapses a lot of other uh, other themes uh, in in your book as well. Could you maybe comment on that? What what you know? What motivated that that the coining of that expression of bone empires? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I I, uh, I you know saw these uh, as you say these major institutions and and we've named a, a number of them, but we could include in the mix the University of Pennsylvania, Harvard University, uh, Yale. Um, uh, as you know, as well as smaller institutions like Howard University and medical museums, um, uh, the Mütter Museum of, of Philadelphia uh, is as a chapter in this book. Um, so it, it, it is remarkable for how quickly, when those institutions and um, quote unquote men or women of science in some instances are um, competing for uh, these resources, both against each other. And then also against looters in a very real sense, who are uh, going across the American West, especially, uh, but also uh, places throughout South America and elsewhere around the world, and uh, digging up graves, often for grave goods rather than human remains. But over time, there does become a market for for human remains. Uh, Franz Boas talks about selling skulls for uh, $4 or $5 for, for a skull. Um, so yeah, there, there is sort of this sense of, of competition and, uh, of course the, uh, establishing of these major museums and their support over many generations is in no small part about 
urban boosterism, you know, about Chicago, you know, uh, deserving this great natural history museum or New York um, deserving this great natural history museum to compete with London. Um, So it's as much a city versus city uh, uh, sort of urban boosterism as it is also a story of, of nationalism. Um, but you sort of put all of that together and you have these sort of imperial acts of, uh, growth and acquisition and collecting that, that are sort of reminiscent of, of empires in other ways. Um, and of course, you know, we're, we are also talking about mummies and, uh, brains and, uh, other pieces of, of flesh, uh, but by and large, when you enter these spaces, they're, they're row after row after row of human bones. So uh, bone empires uh, came to me as a, an, an expression to sort of um, uh, express what, what it is we're seeing here. It, I think I'm glad, I'm glad you, you, uh, you, you mentioned the, the, the mummies, the brains, uh, I think some also, um, you know, flesh, uh, you know, um, that was collected, I think. To me, also, what was interesting about the the book is that there there is uh, this traditional way of seeing the history of museums as uh, well. Their first avatar being uh, the uh, cabinet of curiosities, right? And then uh, you would, uh, through process of more systematization and professionalization, lead to the modern museum that we know today. But I think in the case of bone rooms, for example. This is where that very linear narrative kind of uh, becomes more problematic because because the bone rooms in, in times in the way you describe them or the way they're being used for exhibitions, for example, or the way um, scientists or curators are trying to uh, get more funding for it or get their um, their research more uh, get more support for their research. Uh, we are going back to uh bones not just as scientific specimens or they as they're being advertised in order to be collected but as curios and and i think you know there's not just that we talked about the the problematic process of getting these individual remains into specific uh, into scientific specimen but then there's this uh weird moment where they're both scientific specimens and get back to being curios uh could you maybe comment on that? Explain like what what happens once they're being quote unquote salvaged. Sure. So um, you know when the uh, remains would arrive at uh, an institution, quite commonly they'd be un- unpacked and uh, examined uh, and processed in in a way that was quite similar to uh, other types of, of material and. Uh, one of the stories uh, in, in the book, but also a story for uh, anthropology and, and the science of anatomy more generally, are debates in the early 20th century, especially about how exactly to me- consistently measure the human body, like what measurements, because, you know, <laughs> the skull is sort of a weird, weirdly shaped ball that uh, is inconsistent and, you know, how to measure from one location to another. There's a surprising lack of consistency over many, many decades and decades, I would say, um, before that is sort of systematized and and sorted out. Um, But yeah, I mean, the the Smithsonian has a lot to do with that in that they're processing and cataloging these collections and then maybe trading them away from, from one place to another. 
Um, but it is also simultaneously the case as they're working to sort of normalize and, and make into specimens, uh, uh, sort of to scientize these collections. There are also these spectacular or remarkable collections that, that arrive at, at museums as well um, that, you know, sometimes are very ancient or uh, were acquired from sort of uh, bizarre circumstances. Uh, uh, you know, for example, Magdalenian Girl uh, at, at the Field Museum, which is one of the oldest European, uh, uh, quote unquote, specimens of, you know, any skeleton of uh, a, a European uh uh, human uh, sent to North America. And uh, according to some sources, she was sent to North America uh, in a, a, an American flag draped coffin, uh, convincing uh, inspection officials that this was the remains of a fallen soldier. And so they didn't really do much careful checking. So this basically this national treasure of France uh, leaves and comes to a museum in, in the United States. Um, and yeah, there, I mean, there's this prevailing idea that, um, these these are resources that are best served through um, uh, their their processing and and taking part in this scientific conversation and and don't get me wrong there are some studies that are done and redone in terms of uh, uh, studying uh, you know questions about race and, and human history uh, but there's always been ethical questions and, and concerns around those and and um, they're 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 still publishing new articles in journals about uh, asking questions like how do we, you know, they're more vocally and, and more thoroughly upfront uh, do thinking and, and talking uh, about the ethical problems related to these uh, collections, as well as doing uh, legitimate scientific research on them. I, if, if I could uh, um, switch now to, to maybe another topic, I think um, sure. there's a, there's a rather, uh, there's an absence in the book, but a, a telling absence, and, and, and I'm sure you can you can comment on it. It's um, uh, the voices of um, the the voices of Native American, for example, um, and their relation at the time to to that process. Um, and and it, you know, I'm, I'm saying it's a telling absence in the sense that I think it. It, because it's linked to a lot of difficulties in terms of like getting the archives, getting the getting the stories, uh, and and also uh, the power relation that allowed for this systematic collecting in the first place. So maybe could you can you comment on maybe the, the difficulties maybe of of getting that story right, getting the the, the, the this other side of the story, um, and and how it shapes maybe some of the debates today around restitutions. Totally. So the focus of this book, I should say, I maybe should have said up front, the focus of this book is uh, roughly the time period 1865 to 1945 or the Civil War to World War II, more or less. Um, and during that time, you see a whole host of ways in which Native voices or resistance to this process was erased. Um, now there are interesting counter examples, um, for, for instance, uh, letters, um, of, uh, people saying that they, uh, were robbing a particular grave and then they were attacked by, uh, local, uh, native people. Um, so we know, uh, from, you know, many different ways that there, there was a resistance to uh, much of this practice. And now we also need to respect, right. That, 
there are more than 400 different native nations, communities uh, in, in North America, and they all have different, slightly, you know, different attitudes about death and, and burial. And um, so it's not, you know, just one sort of unified thing, but by and large, many native people were, were not supporting of this uh, as, as, a, as a process, but there wasn't the systematic, um, uh, to, you know, to your point about power differential, there wasn't a lot of uh, ability to sort of stage uh, or, or mount a, a systematic resistance to this. Um, but by the 1960s and 1970s, you start to see things in the archives like uh, of uh, episodes of, of Native protests and resistance in relationship to these stories about collecting uh, you know, sacred objects in addition to, to human remains. And then by the 1980s and 1990s, this has really swelled into a, a, a firestorm uh, that, that ultimately results in the passage of the National Museum of the American Indian Act and NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act in 1990, that finally gives Native people a, 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 a mechanism for calling for, for these remains uh, back today. But yeah, I would say, you know, that's been one of the critiques of the book. It's this, it's a history book that um, you know, looks uh, looks back at this earlier era. Uh, it, it seemed to me like there was some that had been written about the origins of these stories and some that had been written about the contemporary sort of ethics of these. But um, I was surprised that the sort of era of great and massive collecting, sort of what really created this these problems. Sure, the origins do as well. But that but when you when you look at thirty thousand sets of human remains, like that was my core question. Like, how did these get here? Um, and yeah, frankly, that involves a lot of erasure of of native voice in uh, the the process. That now we need to to look to frankly. Uh, native people uh, and and for for advice on on how to move forward and and to rectify the situation and, and repatriation in in many cases, um, but this intended to be a, a book to try to add to that conversation in in that one way. No, absolutely. I think uh, you know I, I don't see it as a, as a critique really to the book. To me, it, it was just uh, I think it illustrates just as you mentioned uh, the fact that at the same time that bones were quote unquote salvaged. Uh, that that it that very you know uh, once once again another paradox of history is that you can at the same time um, uh, collect and curate certain aspects of uh, a, a period or or the past while at the same time systematically erasing another and 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 usually they go hand in hand in the sense of the process of erasure is helping the process of or sustaining the process of collecting whatever you want to collect. So, it, you know, I, I think to me that 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 was very very interesting to to look at the book also, and having this constant echo of uh, all right, the debates now around how do how do they how how should they uh, measure these these uh, skulls, etc. What is the voice that's missing? And I think your book, uh, especially at the beginning, right, with the story of the Dakota men, and at the end where you um, you mentioned the possibility of seeing these bones more as as individuals rather than just as specimens, uh, is is doing a good job as reminding us of that missing voice. Um, 
maybe the, the, the last question I'd like to ask you is, um, what, where has uh, your research on bone rooms led you <laughs> so far, right? I mean, this book uh, was first published, as I mentioned, in, in 2016. Uh, you know, you've, you've, as you mentioned, discovered that this, this history from the mid-19th century up to the mid-20th century hadn't been really, you know, systematically studied. So where has this, you know, discovery led you to so far? Yeah, it's been a, a really remarkable journey. And, um, you know, when, when a, a, a book comes out, of course, there's sort of this conversation about it, potentially, if, if you're lucky. Um, but then that, you know, of course, goes away um, in terms of, uh, of course, many academic books and, and things of that nature. Um, but then uh, in, in the last couple of years, uh, a, a real wave of stories related to uh, uh, these issues has, has come to the fore uh, again. And uh, I'm both I'm simultaneously surprised and, and not surprised by that because, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the whole point of, of this story is that there remains a huge number of uh, stories that are little known and uh, under under told. Uh, and they relate in many cases to the brutal exploitation of remains through these racist frameworks uh, that allowed major scientific institutions to benefit over the course of many, many years. It's a real shocking history and shocking story. So a couple of years ago, when um, Harvard announced that it may have the remains of some enslaved uh, 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 formerly enslaved individuals in its uh, collection that that created a, a wave of attention that you know sort of domino effect led to people looking with more introspection at at the University of Pennsylvania collection and uh, the Smithsonian and elsewhere. This coincided with uh, the growth and 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 reemergence of Black Lives Matter protests um, and broader conversations about systematic racism. Uh, an episode around the, the move bombing uh, victims uh, and, and their use of their remains in an anthropology class at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, again, brought about a great deal of attention to the, the, the stories. Um, but this is going to continue, frankly, uh, the, the, this sort of discovery and, and um, uh, uh, need to sort of wrestle with, with these collections uh, it's 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 not going away. So the Smithsonian has worked on revising uh, many of its policies, and um, uh, University of Pennsylvania and Harvard have have made statements. Um, so uh, I I feel fortunate that that my my book has played a small part, I think, in in uh, helping move this conversation along, and and um, it's being released now in, in paperback. I think because of the. Uh, the the added attention to these stories and and um, I think that's ultimately a good thing that we're having these conversations. No, th thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I really, once again, that was that was an absolute like pleasure to to delve into that book. And I think you know, through like once again, like the very very difficult questions of uh, how does uh, you know how do the even these these collection massive collections of of human remains came about uh, the process of seeing them as scientific specimens and now i think what seems to be a not necessarily a reverse process but kind of a com complementary or an answering process of uh seeing them as under more complex lights and also seeing that it requires a variety of actors to really treat them in a way that is both that could be both scientific but also respectful um well 
thank you so much uh, for your time. Thank you so much for this interview. That was an absolute, an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.